Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving week. Um, I hope for you it was as perfect of a Thanksgiving week as it could have been, whatever that means. I think we all have a different definition of a perfect holiday. That's actually going to be the theme of our Advent series, uh, our Advent series that we will kick off next week. Typically, uh, we would start that this week. This is technically the beginning of Advent. But next week, we will start off an Advent series that I've been excited about for months called A Perfect Christmas or The Perfect Christmas. And um, it's going to be a, a unique perspective. It's going to be a, a unique approach to the idea of Advent. Uh, I'm really excited for that. Before we can get to Advent, we need to finally... After three weeks uh, of this, need to finish Acts chapter number 19. So grab your Bible. We're going to jump right in this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, we're going to invite you to join with us in our tradition. Uh, this is a season full of traditions, right? Well, we have our weekly tradition, and we declare this, and we pray this together as a people. And so if that's where you're at today, then let's hold up our Bibles, and let's say this with some conviction this morning. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you. Turn again to Acts chapter number 19. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 873. Uh, page 873, Acts chapter number 19 is where we've been the last few weeks. What we're going to do is a, a quick review so that we can kind of jump back into that. But I know some have been out of town and, and traveling with the holidays. So a quick overview would be this. In the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul uh, begins to see great fruit in his ministry there. And in the center of this city is the worship uh, at the temple to the goddess Artemis uh, or Diana. Diana is her Roman name. And the reason that Artemis is so important to this important city is she was, in their mind and in their hearts, the source of their protection and their prosperity. She was the source, say the word source with me, of their protection, say protection, and their prosperity, say prosperity. She was believed to be the source. Of their prospect, their protection and their prosperity, or their prosperity. We can just combine the two, kind of like Brad and Angelina. Okay, so these uh, people are seeing this great move of God, and uh, in this great move of God, some pretty amazing things happen. There's these seven sons of a priest named uh, Siva, and they see the power of the name of Jesus that we just sang about here. And they're like, hey, we, we're going to try to use that name to do some exorcism. There was a lot of d- demonic and spiritual activity taking place in the city of Ephesus at this time. And so they try to cast the demon out of this guy who responds audibly, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Which would be terrifying enough if it weren't for the fact that then the guy possessed by the demon attacks all seven of them at once overpowers them, and they run away, according to Acts chapter 19, naked and wounded. That's bizarre. And just like you would expect, here's here's the first verse we would look at for review. Verse 17, this, all this stuff that had been happening around the name of Jesus, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, Jews and Greeks, because every time the name of Jesus has been proclaimed in any culture, it's been multicultural, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, made bigger, magnified, enlarged. 
And when that happens, it tends to mess things up. It messes with the status quo. Verse 18, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. This is bizarre. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a really expensive bonfire. He said it's like 138 years of a man's working wage, somewhere around $7 million, one person estimated it to be. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God's word continued to, to move in this city, the city of Artemis, the city where she was the source of the Ephesians' protection, and prosperity. And so, man, people are, are having their business get interrupted by this. No little disturbance arose at that time. A guy named Demetrius, who's a uh, silversmith, gathers together his other fellow silversmiths. A lot of S's in that. And says, hey, listen, uh, we're, in, we're in trouble here. They're messing with our business. They're messing with our profit. They're messing with our Wealth, And he calls the city together. Verse 26 says, you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Turned away from what? From their little gods. He's turned them away saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. There's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She may even be, love this language, deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship, apparently she's pretty fragile. When they heard this, they were enraged. Say the word enraged. They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Sing with me how great is Artemis. They declare this and they grab some of Paul's followers. They go into this humongous theater. Town clerk eventually stands up and he's like, we're going to get in trouble for causing a riot here. We need to dial this down and... He dismissed this assembly. The word assembly is ecclesia, this gathering around this cause. The problem we said last week is not that they were not worshipers. It's that they were worshiping the wrong things. Because we are all worshipers. We are all constantly worshiping something. Every one of us in every moment has our heart oriented towards something. We Saul from Paul David Chip last week, he said, we're always in pursuit of something and in service of something to provide us with meaning, purpose, and joy. And God created us that way. God designed us to realize that meaning and purpose and joy is actually found outside of me, not inside of me. I keep looking for it and I can't find it or I can't find enough of it. And so we're oriented to find that outside of ourselves and we continue to look horizontally for where it's only found vertically. That's why lovingly God keeps calling us to himself because he knows that he alone can provide us with meaning, purpose and joy. And yet we're constantly looking for our own version of it. That's the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is seeking to find meaning, purpose, joy in anything other than God. 
A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of hearing Tony Evans speak, and just kind of off the cuff, uh, in passing, he said this, an idol is any noun that becomes a source. The Ephesians believed that Artemis was their source, right? And Tony Evans says any noun, any person, place, thing, or idea can uh, become a hijacked source in our life where we're pulling our meaning, our joy, our identity, our purpose, our satisfaction, any noun can become that. Therefore, just like God sent Paul into the city of the Ephesians, he's constantly at work in our lives to deliver us from lesser loves that can never satisfy us. To constantly set us free from bondage to lesser pursuits than himself. Louis Giglio said the best gift God can give you is the commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the most loving, most kind, most gracious command he could give us is stop looking for something to satisfy you apart from me, to define you, to give you purpose apart from me. This whole year that we've been walking through the book of Acts, you've heard me quote from J.D. Greer a lot. Um, Skip Heitzig has, has been an incredibly valuable resource in this study. Uh, probably only second to Heitzig's uh, material has, has been J.D. Greer's research about the book of Acts. And I've, I've mentioned that a lot um, because I want to give credit where credit's due. And I actually had the opportunity to, to speak to J.D. Greer a couple weeks ago. Um, he was speaking at a conference that I was attending, and I told him how helpful these resources had been. I told him um, that that we had been helped as a church body from him. And it's important to me to say that because we live in an age where pastors plagiarize all the time on Sunday mornings. And so it's important to me uh, to say, hey, this is where this came from. Um, we're not trying to, to recreate um, some false image of research here. I'm really grateful. And more than any other week this week has been informed by a single source. Every other part of the text we've walked through, it's been a, a bunch of different voices speaking into it. But as I was studying J.D. Greer's uh, chapter 19 research, he made five observations from this text about idols that was so helpful. And this morning, uh, I, I want to share those five observations in my own words. These aren't his exact words, so I don't want to put those words in his mouth. I'm going to say it the way that it made more sense in my brain. Um, but I'm incredibly grateful to him for this. I want to give you five things that I believe idols promise or lie about and, and give a corresponding truth to that. And, uh, and then, and then we're going to respond at the end. Number one, idols promise us satisfaction. Idols promise us satisfaction. That's what Artemis did. That's what Diana did. She promised to be the protector and the prosperer of that city. They believed she was the only one who can guarantee security or joy. And the question today is, what is that in my life? About what in my life do I think, if that's present, I'll have joy, and if it's not, I could never possibly be happy. Let me say it in a different way. How would I complete the sentence, if I only had blank, I'd be truly happy? And maybe it's not a, if I had it, it's if I can keep it. Maybe it's something you already have in your life. And you're like, if I can keep that, I'll be happy. Or if I, if I lose blank... Or never get 
blank, I don't think I could go on. How we fill in that blank defines what's on the throne of our heart. If I only had influence, I'd be happy. If I only had success, if I only had money, if I only had romance, if I only had fame, if I only had respect, if I only had children, if I only had perfect children, if I only had beauty, if I only had a beach house, if I only had a midlife crisis sports car, if I only had fill in the blank. Then I could be happy. And, and I use that list because idols usually are not actually bad things. Typically idols are not creepy looking witchcraft horns and blood of chickens and what, I don't know what I'm making stuff up now. It's not some freaky thing. It's actually usually a good thing. Paul David Chip says the biblical principle of idolatry is this. Desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. When this governs how I uh, uh, feel and, and make decisions and this, the decisions I make in, in my future and, and how I respond in a situation and governs my soul, even when it's a good thing, that's a bad thing. Idols are these things that we believe will guarantee us power and joy. And apart from them, we think we can't possibly have power or joy. We read stories like this and, and, and it's tempting to think these primitive cave people, they took a meteor and carved an idol out of it and served it. How dumb could they be? We are way more refined than that. We think that this is so primitive. J.D. Greer said this. I think he actually stole this from Tim Keller, but he didn't quote him. So I'm I'm quoting J.D. Greer. He said, idols are good things that have become God things. Idols are good things that have become God things. If I lose a good thing from my life, I will be sad. But if I lose a God thing from my life, I will be devastated. You made a face. I thought I spelled the word God wrong or something. Huh? Yes, it is. He made a face. I thought I spelled, I was, I was making sure I didn't spell God's name wrong on the screen. <laughs> it made me look paranoid. <laughs> and now I've called attention to you and we're just going to sit in it. <laughs> Dude gets his masters and thinks he can spell. <laughs> oh, and in closing, that last sentence was really important, so I'm going to say it again. If for, not for your sake, for my own. If I lose a good thing in my life, I will be sad. But if I lose a God thing, I will be devastated. I can fill in that blank that the thing that defines me and is my purpose and joy is marriage. And if I do that, I'm going to put such a pressure on my marriage, it will never possibly satisfy me. Marriage is a good thing, but when it becomes a God thing, when it becomes a ruling thing, I will demand perfection in my marriage. And the problem is my marriage can never be perfect as long as I'm one of the people in it. 
If I'm a broken person married to a broken person in a broken world, then that's an awful lot to demand out of my marriage. We begin with this idea that when I find that person, then my life will be fully fulfilled. Every romantic movie ever. Get this, you'll be happy. Miss this, your life will be miserable. If you're single right now and you really want to be married, I want to ask you this question. Do you believe it's possible that you could be happy and content single? If you don't think so, maybe that's become an idol in your heart. One pastor said this, you're not ready to date until you're ready to not date. Marriage being an idol in our singleness will almost guarantee that marriage will become an idol in our marriage. What about a career? If I just had the blank level of success, then I'll be happy. Listen, being successful in a career is a good thing, but when it becomes a God thing, it is an always moving target. It's an always next promotion or raise. Could you be okay if you are where God intended you to be in your career today? Our kids can become an idol to us that, that we'll have these perfect kids and then we put these expectations on them to, to be something other than normal kids. Or maybe having kids at all has become an idol. For some of us, health can become an idol. What if our health will not improve? Can we be okay? For some of us, it's fame. What if, what if your good work never gets noticed? What if you're just never a big deal? Can you be okay? For many of us, entertainment is a fill-in-the-blank thing. We don't just enjoy it. It's what we live for. There's nothing wrong with looking forward to a good thing, but if, if you don't get to accomplish anything else on your bucket list, can you be okay? It's, it's interesting that we're in that time of year that some of you are beginning to think maybe about your New Year's resolutions list. What am I going to add this year or put on again from last year? Often, that list is our renewed resolution to pursue idols that can never actually satisfy us. Some of us, justice is an idol. We, we've got to make everything right for every way that we've suffered or that somebody in our life has suffered. And until it's made right, we can't be okay. What in our life fills in the blank to offer us hope, security, and satisfaction apart from God? Idols promise us satisfaction, but I believe with everything in my heart that only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart. Jesus is our satisfaction. The true God alone who gives life can satisfy life. Idols promise something they can't deliver. Number two, idols provoke us emotionally. Of the five points, this was the one that I found the most interesting and most convicting. Idols provoke us emotionally. I asked you to say the word with me, enraged, because that's what happens when our idols are, are threatened. When the gospel threatens the things that own our hearts, we tend to get violent. 
One author said, each heart has its own Parthenon, and when our idols are challenged, we react just as violently. So what's that thing? The idea of losing it or never gaining it makes us despair. Again, and I already said this, if we lose a good thing, we are sad. If we lose a God thing, we are devastated. Tim Keller said there is nothing more painful than the death of an idol. When somebody pulls the rug out from underneath our idol or gets in our way of getting it, it's painful. And I will tell you that many of my deepest emotions are connected to the idols that I battle in my heart. Many of my deepest emotions are connected to my worship of the God of approval. Because of insecurity in my life, which by the way, many pastors battle insecurity, uh, and then we get up and talk to people who sleep through our talks. It's the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> battling insecurity and, and battling shame from past failures has fed an approval addiction that is idolatrous. And so therefore, when someone's path changes and they leave me, it's abandonment. It, it, it invokes this deep emotion in me because what it did is it cut me off from an idol. I would ask you this. This is a great diagnostic question. Who are you unable to forgive and why? Who do you really struggle to forgive and why? Because what we have seen in this pattern of human existence is it's hardest for me to forgive the people who've slayed the most idols in my heart. The reality is that hurt that they brought me might actually be good for me if it puts an idol to death. Idols provoke us emotionally. And here's the question this morning. I've, man, I've just been marinating on this for the last couple of weeks. I think I've mentioned this and some of you, I talked about this one on one, but what if our emotions are less about our experiences of what's around us and more about exposure of what's inside of us? Like what if my emotional responses aren't reality, they're the, the flashing light on the dashboard telling me what the reality of my heart is. Does that make sense? Like, as a culture, we've gotten better at feeling our feelings. As a culture, we talk about our grandparents' generation, and we're, we're so proud of ourselves that we're not as emotionally constipated as they were, and we're good at feeling our feelings. The problem is, as a society, we have not gotten really good at thinking our thinkings. And so we're very articulate with what we're feeling, but if someone has the audacity to respond to our feelings with this question, why do you feel that way? We're, we're dumbfounded. What kind of terrible question is that? I just feel. And what if it's meant to be a, a light on the dashboard that says, let's pay attention to where that tsunami of emotions came from? Maybe the reason that, that I'm so disappointed in my spouse is because I'm, I'm codependent. I've made an idol of them and so I can't be okay unless they're okay and I just re- ride this emotional roller coaster based on what kind of day that they are having or not having. Maybe we depend on our family 
And therefore, we've become incredibly controlling because everything has to be perfect. Have you noticed that that people who seem to have a lot of something seem to not be able to enjoy it very much? Ironically, when I idolize something, it ultimately keeps me from being able to enjoy it. Because now I obsess over it. The great Jonathan Edwards said, if we idolize, we must also demonize because none of those idols can actually fulfill the promises that they made. And so, man, it's going to create such deep emotion and resentment and anger or fear. I'm going to demonize that. Some of you are, are, are really hurt by someone when the reality is they are not a demon. You've made them an idol. And they just need to be set free. Ironically, people who are the most dissatisfied with the amount of money they have usually have more than we do. Ironically and painfully, many of the young ladies who develop eating disorders are beautiful people. A good thing that becomes a God thing becomes a harmful thing. It robs us of joy. And here's why. I want to park here for a few minutes. Idols rob us of joy because we worshipped something that can't sustain the weight of our souls. I'm going to ask you to hear what I'm about to say. And I've, I've said this before. Pretend like you haven't heard it before. The, the Old Testament Hebrew word that we translate as honor or glory is the Hebrew word kabod. Which means weight. Glory means weight in the Old Testament. Well, the Greek rendering of that word in the New Testament is doxa. Like as in doxology. Which means weight. Glory is placing weight on something. And what I place my glory on is either able to bear the weight of my worship or it will crush it. Does that make sense? This past July, Ethan and I went to see the movie Elvis in the theater. The acting was great. The music was great. The cinematography was great. That movie literally broke my heart. I cried like a baby through that movie. Those of you who know me well, that's not that big of a deal. They talked me into watching it a second time after it was released to streaming. I thought maybe it would not mess me up so bad. I was wrong. Here's why that movie messes me up so bad. Societally, we put glory on a person and it crushed them. And the movie was so well done that I almost felt the weight of what we did to him. Which I believe is what we also did as a society to Michael Jackson and to Whitney Houston and to a hundred other athletes who I can't believe they made a train wreck of their life. We put things on their shoulders. Their shoulders were not broad enough to bear. It's true of a hundred other idols as well. Idols engage the deepest emotions in our heart because the more we worship them, the more they crumble. It's interesting that preachers get the most grief for preaching about money 
because nothing's a bigger idol in our culture than money. And maybe that anger, that defensiveness, is actually a healthy light on the dashboard that says, maybe an idol needs to fall. Here's the truth about idols. Idols provoke us emotionally. But Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our constant. He's our peace. The way off the emotional roller coaster of idolatry is the peace that's found in the person of Jesus. And let me say this. Sometimes we see people and they're just like chill. They just seem stable. They seem to be able to bear the heartache of life. They seem more calm than us. And, and we find ourselves jealous of their personality. We find ourselves jealous of how they're wired. But maybe their peace is more about their praise than their personality. Maybe they've allowed some idols to be crushed. And they've reoriented their praise to the only one whose shoulders are broad enough to bear the weight of their worship. Maybe their peace is more about how they worship than how they're wired. Jesus is our peace. Number three, idols require protection. Idols require protection. The reason the crowd reacted so aggressively is we have to protect Artemis. She might be deposed of her magnificence because this guy showed up and talked. We got to protect her. Artemis was not just the prosperer of the city. She was the protector. And that's the great irony. Whatever I think will be my protector in life, I'm going to have to protect. What in my life am I willing to protect at all costs? What am I obsessive about protecting in my life? If I'm obsessive about protecting the image of a perfect marriage, obsessed that ours isn't as good as it could be, or maybe I married the wrong person, or if I'm single, I obsess about what if I miss my opportunity? Parents, we get clingy with our kids to protect our kids. This age of bubble-wrapped kids. And and I will say this. The world is incredibly different than it was when I was young. But I think we have a generation of parents who are overprotecting their kids. And it has nothing to do with the children's wellness. It has to do with mom and dad making idols out of their kids. Our children's shoulders are not broad enough to bear the weight of our joy and our identity. They're kids. If reputation is an idol to us, we always have to protect it. We're constantly keeping secrets and on the wins we have to make sure that we get the credit. And on the losses we don't want to learn from it, nobody can criticize us. If money is our idol, we're always worried about whether we're going to have enough How can we protect it? Which means, of course, we can't give. I find it interesting that this chapter has been delayed and delayed and delayed. And here we are smack dab between Black Friday and Cyber Monday talking about idols. Because I read this morning... That in the midst of recession and all the terrible things I hear about the economy... We had a record Black Friday online 
number. And, and as high as 78% of the money spent on Black Friday was borrowed. Buy now, pay later. Maybe the Lord brought us to this text in a season where we're also confronted with a little thing called family. Maybe in the middle of Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're, we're reminded of what we spend most of the year trying to forget, and that is that we're a part of an imperfect family. And I, I, I want you to hear my heart on this. I believe somebody needs to hear this today. I've been waiting for weeks to say this. I believe some of us have made an idol out of our wounds. Some of us have made an idol out of our hurts. We cling to them because they are our excuse for all of our bad behaviors. They are our excuse for being a victim. They are our excuse for not living a vulnerable life. They've become our identity and our safety. And every time somebody suggests that maybe we should deal with those hurts and move forward, we protect them. Idols require our protection. And here is the simple but glorious truth this morning. Jesus is our protection. <laughs> he only, he not only doesn't need your protection today, he actually doesn't need anything from you. He's not a God who can be served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us. And he sure doesn't need our protection. The true God doesn't need you to protect him. He's on a mission to protect you. Psalm 3 verse 3 says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, that's the word weight, and the lifter of my head. Jesus is our protection. Number four, idols demand our sacrifices. Idols demand our sacrifices. The whole system in Ephesus was built on keeping Artemis happy. It's true of every ancient God, by the way. They demand that we sacrifice to them in order to keep them from being displeased. If you want me, you have to sacrifice for me. Most guys who cheat in their business sacrifice their integrity. It's not because they're some terrible human being. It's that they made an idol out of success and had to sacrifice their integrity to get the success that they wanted. I generally am a truthful person. Now, I exaggerate to get a laugh. But typically, I'm a truthful person unless the idol of my approval addiction gets threatened. And then I will exaggerate a story to try to be more impressive than I am. Which if you met me, you'd know is a pretty natural temptation. Many young people who we watch come through our ministry and then they'll start dating a non-Christian. They're, they're not doing that because they're looking forward to having religious fights as a future married couple. They're not doing that because they want to deal with raising their kids with a non-Christian. They just can't stand the idea of being alone. And so they'll sacrifice that commitment saying with young people who are not living in purity sexually. It's not that they're these out of control sex monsters. It's that an idol has been made out of affection 
or satisfaction or pleasure. Christians in churches all across this country who do not trust God with their finances or obey him and yet claim to believe that the Bible is the word of God, it's not that they're stingy. It's just that the idea of obtaining the idols in their life are not worth sacrificing to give to God. Many worship the God of comfort, anything that makes us more comfortable. And even childs, it's, it's interesting. So many of the gods we read about in secular history and in the scriptures demanded child sacrifice. And we're like, how monstrous is that? And yet we applaud the guy who works 70 hours a week and never sees his kids. Idols demand that we pay a price. And if it's not obvious enough where we're going, idols demand our sacrifice, but Jesus is our sacrifice. The true God offered himself as our sacrifice on our behalf. Every other idol is like, man, if you don't do the right thing, I'm not going to be available to you. And Jesus literally is like, hey, you didn't do the right thing. I got you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. (laughs) Incredible. You failed me. I cursed myself for you. Okay. How unlike any other God. Tim Keller said, Jesus is the only God who, when you obtain him, will satisfy you. And when you fail him, will forgive you. Glory to God. There's none like him. Other gods say, if you fail me, I'll destroy you. And Jesus says, you already failed me. So guess what? I've destroyed myself on your behalf. Number five, idols are spiritual. Idols are spiritual, meaning this battle against idols is a battle in the spirit realm. The fact that this story begins with the naked and afraid story. The guys who ran away, wounded and naked. I, I, it's a bizarre story. But the fact that the story begins with an exorcism is helpful for us. Because this battle about idols is the same battle that humankind has been facing since the garden. As the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, what we know is that, that the enemy preaches the same lie in every culture that he preached to Adam and Eve, and that is, you can have your own gods. It can be you. And here's what's heartbreaking this morning. Skip Heitzig pointed this out. If you and I were to travel today to Ephesus, we would find that we would have a very difficult time finding a tour guide who would take us into the city. It's in modern-day Turkey. We might could visit some of the outskirts, the, the theater, for instance. We might could go there if we found the right tour guide. But they would not take us into Ephesus because it's not safe for travelers. The religious threat is high in Ephesus, but the threat is no longer the worship of Diana. It is radicalized Islam. In Ephesus, a city that once saw this great revival and celebration of Jesus, we can't find a Christian church in that city today. As a matter of fact, we told you that in this region we have the the seven 
churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And if we go to those places, uh, Hierapolis and Colossae and Laodicea, what we'll find is you can barely find a Christian there, let alone a visible church. There are some believers in modern day Turkey, but like 0.2%. And that's every brand of Christian that there is. And that's been true for almost a thousand years. Heitzig pointed out that the Christian witness has become almost as vacant as it was at the time before Paul came. And please hear me. This is the cause and effect of idolatry among the people of God. When we are consumed by profit and wealth and comfort and self, we can literally stomp out the work of the gospel. And so here's what I believe. I believe we're at war this holiday season, just like every season. We're in, involved in a warfare for the, the heart that is its own idol-producing factory. We're at war. But here's the truth about the fact that idols are spiritual. Jesus is the victor. <laughs> Jesus has come, he's laid down his life, and he has taken it up again. Idols have no power in the presence of a resurrected Savior. And here we are walking into this season called Advent. And here's the thing, we're actually not walking into Advent. We're walking into second Advent. Make no mistake. The word Advent simply means coming. Well, we believe Jesus has come. He lived a life without sin. He died on a cross for everyone who did have sin, every person that's ever lived other than him. He raised himself from the dead. And now we live in second Advent. We await the second coming of Jesus. And so we're, we're in the midst of a battle with Advent hope that Jesus has already defeated death, hell, and the grave. And there's no idol that's too big for him. There's no battle I have in my heart that's too big for him. So here's my challenge for you as we begin a season of Advent. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I'm challenging every person in this room to take some time alone with the Holy Spirit this week and to process this question. What idols in my life do I need to lay down today? What idols in my life do I need to lay down today? I'm encouraging every person in this room, grab your journal, find a quiet minute, maybe throughout the week, every day, ask the Holy Spirit this, this question, what, what are you up to in my life? And I, I want to give you a few questions to help you walk through this. As, as I was meditating on this, just wondering, number one, am I aware of what idols I'm battling today? Like, do we even know what we're at war against? Does that make sense? I believe we're all at war. But the difference is your idols might look different than my idols. Do you know what you're battling against today? I will tell you this. Your loved ones probably do. I don't know if you want to ask them. Do I know what I'm battling today? And if you don't know for sure the answer to that, then use the five points that we discussed this morning that we borrowed from J.D. Greer. Where am I looking for satisfaction today? What triggers my deepest emotions? What am I protecting with all my might? What am I sacrificing for at all costs? And then how about this one? This idea that it's spiritual. When I'm closest to Jesus, what am I free from? When I'm closest to Jesus, 
What thing that I struggle with do I feel some freedom, some victory in, in my life? What idols in my life do I need to lay down today? Am I aware of what idols I'm battling today? Number two, the next question I want you to ask yourself is, who are my allies in this battle? And by this, I mean, who else knows that you know knows because you've had healthy conversations with about? Not who's talked about those idols behind your back, maybe. Maybe there's a support group about some of your idols. I don't know. But like, who, who do you know? Who have you welcomed into the battle and been honest and vulnerable with? Because I don't believe idols can be defeated alone. There's no lane, lone ranger victories in the battle against the idols of the heart. So who's fighting with you? I mean, for real. We, we have become masters in our generation of false vulnerability. We say something a little bit authentic just to hope that people think we're being real. I'm talking like, who knows the stories? Who's walking with you in this journey? Number three, and this is the idea of laying them down. Am I living in surrender? Is, because I will tell you this. My journey uh, with the idols of my heart have been, God, I lay this down. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to take it back. Thank you. We'll talk later. That this is an ongoing surrender. God, I lay this back down. I give this to you yet again. God, I'm releasing this to you yet again. And then here's the last question. Is my focus on the Advent hope of the gospel today? Because if this becomes behaviorism or moralism, or I'm going to try hard to stop doing bad stuff, then we're toast before we even begin. But if our hope is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that says he's already done the work to set me free from these idols. So spirit, reveal it to me. What am I afraid of? Why would I not invite somebody else into this journey to be an ally with me? Why would I not trust you? Why would I not surrender this to you? Because I'm walking in the hope that only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart. That you're my peace. That you're my protector. That you sacrificed yourself for me. And that you and only you are my victory. What idols in my life do I need to lay down today? If you're struggling to answer that question, I want to say this. We are here to walk along that journey with you. We we want to be in the business of idol slaying together with one another. And so if, if you're like, hey, man, I have no idea what the idols are in my life and I'm too scared to ask my spouse, then listen, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee together. If caffeine's an idol for you, you can drink water while I drink coffee. Let's just sit down and have a conversation. Because I believe Jesus wants to set his people free.